Good morning. All right, yeah, I like a little response there. That's good. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, it's good to be back here in the U.S. I was in uh, Cuba all of last, what, May 2nd through 9th, and uh, that was a great time. Uh, I can tell you, I got to see firsthand God's doing some awesome stuff uh, down there uh, through our brothers and sisters in Cuba on, uh, was it not this most recent Friday, but the Friday before that. Um, we baptized 41 people in the uh, in Gulf of Mexico, uh, so that was pretty cool to, to see. And um, man, God is just moving in all sorts of places all over the world. I know we have a couple uh, guys that are leaving for Indonesia this week, Caleb and Lucas. Love you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just, God is continuing to, uh, to do great work all over the globe, which is awesome, because the whole earth is his. And um, I, I want to start this morning by asking you a question, and I want you to think about what you want in life, all right? And I want you to actually really think about that, so I'm actually going to kind of just pause for a little bit, give you a few seconds, maybe even a minute, uh, to just think about what is it that you, like at your deepest desire, really want in life? I'll go ahead and give you a little minute to think about that. So some of you guys might have had an answer to that question right away. Uh, maybe something that you think about all the time. Um, if that's you, I think that's, you're probably in the minority. I think that most of us kind of go through life never really thinking explicitly about uh, what we're after. But given some time to think about it, there could have been uh, various things that, that came to your mind. Uh, maybe you thought about goals that are in your near future. Uh, thinking about just wanting to graduate college or find a job. Um, some of you might have thought about like distant goals, the idea of like kind of becoming uh, a, a person that's really successful in your career, that's kind of at the top of your field, um, or maybe about just kind of wanting to have a family, a successful family life. Um, some of you might have thought about just kind of less concrete things, and just being like, hey, at, at my core, I just want to be happy, or I want to be at peace, or, or something like that. Um, whatever your answer was, though, I actually want to ask you a question that I believe is more important which is, what does God want in your life? Okay, and I, I say this is a more important question, at least because if you're a Christian, your life is actually not your own anymore. And so whatever uh, that answer was to the first question of what you want in life actually doesn't matter in comparison to this question of what God wants in your life. You see, when we become a Christian, we actually give up ownership of our own lives over to the Lord. We see this all throughout Scripture. Um, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus means rejecting your own selfish desires and going wherever he goes. Okay, look at how Paul put this in 2 Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is that they who live, those that have put their faith in Christ for eternal life, we no longer live for ourselves, 
but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So really, uh, the question, what I'm thinking about, what is it that I want in life, I, I should automatically, if I'm a Christian, be redirecting that to what does God want in my life? Because that, that's actually where all of my uh, desires have been transferred at this point. I, I'm actually not king of my own life anymore. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Man, we, we aren't even our own anymore. Like, if you're a Christian, Jesus bought you with a price. And that's a beautiful and wonderful and awesome thing, but it really means that you don't get to be king of your own life anymore. And so any of the decisions we make about the things that we're pursuing, the question we should really be asking is, what is it that God wants, rather than what it is that I want? And so this theme comes up over and over and over in Scripture, that we're not our own anymore and that we belong to God. Now, this can sound scary, okay, right? Like the idea of giving up control of your own life to someone else is probably terrifying to most of us. Why? Because we trust ourselves to look out for our own best interests, right? Like, like it only makes sense when you kind of think about it that you would expect yourself to be the one who can look out for your best interests the best. You're always thinking about yourself, right? Like you know yourself the best. You're the person that ha has the best uh, kind of understanding, at least out of any of the people around you, of what's going on inside of you and what you think is going to make you happy. And so the, the idea of giving up control of your life to somebody else is actually kind of really terrifying. But the Christian has to come to the realization that the human heart is actually deceitful and sick. And that even though we might think that we can uh, pursue what's best for us, we actually don't know what that is. Like apart from God, we actually don't know what is good for us. You see, the message our culture gives you is to find yourself and follow your heart, right? I think that's the message of every Disney movie, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> every time I watch a Disney movie, it's always the exact same message. You've got to find yourself and follow your heart. And, and it, whatever, it's not just Disney. It's, it's all, all of our culture kind of, th that's this, the prevailing wisdom, I feel like, of our age that's put forth as if it's this great beneficial advice that this is what's going to really give you a great life is if you just try and do what, what your heart tells you to do. And the problem is, that is very different from what the Bible actually tells us. Okay, Jeremiah says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Proverbs says this, it says, There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Apart from Christ, following our heart often leads us into sin, which does not bring good life, but rather it leads us to death. And even if it doesn't lead us into something that might look like overt sin, an unredeemed heart that's not been changed by Christ is always going to lead us towards lesser things that are not worthy of our worship and devotion in life. Okay, and I'm not saying here that uh, most of us are intentionally pursuing things uh, that lead to death. It's just that we don't know any better. A aside from Christ opening our eyes and helping us to see his surpassing value, and the great value of knowing God and how everything else pairs in, pales in comparison to him, like, we just, we just can't figure that out on our own. We need him to show us. Without the light of Christ, we're stumbling in the darkness without having a real understanding of the purpose of life or how we should live it. 
We all want to pursue what's going to make for the best life, but our problem is we just don't know what that is. And so we set our sights on something that uh, we believe is, is going to give us the life we want. It might make us happy for a while, but in the end it runs dry and we long for something more. And so it's no surprise to me that even in a country like the United States that honestly has uh, an amazing amount of opportunity, incredible prosperity, tons of personal freedom, all this kind of stuff, we still have such high rates of depression and suicide, even in a country like this. We're full of anxiety. And, and I think if most of us are honest with ourselves, oftentimes realize that, that following our hearts hasn't really created real joy in our lives. And so when we come to the realization that we don't actually know how to pursue what's best on our own, it becomes a comforting idea that the Christian gives up control of his life to God. We aren't the captain anymore, but that's okay because we're blind anyway. We're handing the wheel over to somebody that actually knows how to steer us in the right direction. And the good news is this. God loves you, and he wants what's best for you. I think that, that because we have such a, a, a desperately sick and deceitful heart, at least apart from Christ, that w w the idea of saying, God, I'm going to trust you in directing my life is absolutely terrifying, and we don't trust that he's going to lead us towards something that's actually good. But over and over, the scriptures uh, promise us that God actually wants to give us an abundant life. Look at what Jesus said. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right? Like Jesus is telling you, this is what I came for. I, I came that you would have abundant life. There is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? We have all sorts of different competing influences in our lives. Uh, in, in this particular passage in John 10, Jesus is talking about this idea of, of being a shepherd and comparing himself as the shepherd against the, sheep, against the, the thief. And, and the, the thief is going to try and do everything it can to, to harm the sheep, to steal, to kill, destroy. But, but the shepherd wants to give them life. And, and Jesus says, man, I want to give you life and not just give you some life. Like, I want it to be abundant. I know you. Like, you realize that God is the one that created you. He knows your heart better than you could possibly know it. He's the only one that knows what you were actually designed for. He wants us to have rich, fulfilling everlasting lives. And you look at these other scriptures that communicate the idea of the life God wants to give us. Psalm 16, 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. He helps us to know the path of life, right? Like, he makes known to us the path of life. On our own, we can't find that. But as we come to him, we start to experience fullness of joy. You know, uh, look at the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to produce in our lives. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who doesn't want to have a life that's marked by those kind of qualities? And you see, this is the life that God actually wants to produce in you. This is what's called the fruit of the Spirit. As you come to the, to the Lord... You, you come to know Jesus, he puts the Holy Spirit within you. And the Spirit starts to produce these characteristics. These things will mark your life. And finally, look at the description of living water that Jesus offers to give. This is where we get our church name, H2O, from. John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life.
Man, when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, he's not calling us to misery, although it could actually seem that way at first, right? Like, especially literally saying that, that part of it is, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross. Cross is literally a, a torture and execution device. And the Bible's clear that uh, if you desire to follow Christ and live a godly life, like, you're going to experience hardship and suffering and difficulty and persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly, to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the Christian realizes that whatever earthly troubles or sacrifices might come as a result of following Jesus are not worth comparing to the life that he gives us. See what Jesus said in Mark 10, 29-30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, persecutions are going to come. There's going to be difficulties and sufferings that comes in following Jesus. But Christ gives us abundant life both now and in eternity. And there is no way that you could possibly craft a life for yourself that is better than the one that God wants you to live. And I know for many of you, you might have, have heard this before. Or something along these kind of lines. This idea that, oh, you know, God has a plan for you. God wants what's best for you. All this kind of stuff. Uh, but I ask you, like, do you actually believe that? Like, do you really believe the words of Scripture that I'm putting forth before you? Because I, I think that for many of us, we would say that we believe these truths, but in a lot of ways, our lives don't reflect it because we don't actually give full ownership of our lives over to Jesus. We don't actually trust him to, to guide us in making all of our decisions. And at the end, we kind of just keep him off on the side and say, yeah, I'll go to church, I'll go to Bible study, but at the end of the day, like, I'm really still going to be captain of my own life. And, you know, we'll say that we believe these truths, but in the reality, we, we don't experience the kind of abundant life that Jesus said that he came to give. So what, what's the problem? Especially if you say that, that you can believe all of these right things about Jesus, but you say, I, I don't know that I'm really experiencing streams of living water welling up within me. I don't know that I'm really experiencing something that I would call abundant life. Why is it that we might be failing to experience that? Well, I would propose that a major reason for this might be because we don't give the Holy Spirit any room to actually work and transform our lives. It's not necessarily that we don't even necessarily know the right things to believe or, or have some level of faith, but it's that we, we trust in Christ to be our Savior, but we, we still struggle so much in actually giving Him control over everything else. We don't actually surrender our plans to him. We don't actually do anything to, to try and grow in depth with him. We don't do anything to try and learn to hear his voice more or to get to know his character or to let him transform our heart to be more like his. And so what we're left with is a very shallow version of Christianity that doesn't have the transforming power and the abundant life that God wants to give. And so I ask, like, do you want to mature in Christ? Because maturity in Christ is how you're going to start receiving the kind of life that he actually wants to give you. 
We're going to start actually being transformed into the person that has the heart and the mind that he wants you to have. To be able to experience the life that he's actually designed you to have. Do you want to experience deeper fellowship with the Lord? Like, are you content just where you are right now, or do you want to have a deeper level of fellowship with him? Do you want to experience greater victory over sin in your life? Or do you just want to be content with allowing whatever sin struggles you have to continue to linger and linger and linger? Do you want to have greater effectiveness in ministry? Right? I think all of us would love to see our lives be more fruitful for the kingdom. Do you want to live a life that actually matters, that has a, a lasting impact into eternity even? I genuinely believe that God wants all of those things for you. He wants you to have deeper fellowship with him. He wants you to have victory over sin. He wants you to have great effectiveness and fruitfulness in ministry. He wants you to have a life that matters. And these are beautiful gifts, but they, they don't just come in fullness automatically as we're saved. Like, yes, we are given eternal life as soon as we put our faith in Christ. But there's so much maturing that he wants us to do in that time that we're following him between now and the time that we're going to be perfected. The Christian life is one of continual growth. Look at John 15, 1-4. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. You know, this is a, a really powerful passage in, in John's Gospel. But I want to point out a few things that he says there. First off, he says, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. On some level, I, th I think at least all the disciples, probably except Judas, had, had come to some level of faith in Christ uh, as the, the Messiah, the, the Savior that was coming from God. I don't know that they fully understood it, but on some level, I think they had a, a kind of saving faith. You know, but, but we see there's this idea that every branch in me that bears fruit, the Father prunes it so that it would bear more. The branch was already bearing fruit, but that doesn't mean that it's reached its max capacity. So, you know, maybe that's, that's you. You're, you're already clean because of the word spoken to you. You're already clean. You believe the gospel. There's even some fruit in your life. But Jesus is telling us that the branches in him that bear fruit, the Father prunes it so that it would bear more fruit. The Christian life, as I said, is a life of continual growth. God doesn't want you to just be stagnant where you are. And we see that we're called to abide in Christ. Notice that Christ is the one that we must be connected to in order to bear fruit. We cannot do it on our own. The Father is the one that prunes. Uh, our connection to Christ is the, one, is the way that we're able to bear fruit. Uh, the fruit that we bear is totally the result of God's work in us, right? But there is a call of responsibility on us. And what is that? Abide in me, right? Like, we can't bear fruit apart from Christ. He's the one that's going to make that happen. The Father's the one that's going to prune us to help us bear more fruit. But there is a call on us to take action to abide in him. That, that's, a, that's a command that puts a responsibility upon us. There's an active responsibility put on the Christian to make sure that he is always keeping himself near Jesus. 
So how do we abide in Christ? How do we put ourselves in position to always be near to him so that he can work in us and bear fruit through us and in us? This is what brings me to the topic of spiritual disciplines, which is what we're going to be talking about and exploring for the rest of the summer, okay? And you won't find the term spiritual disciplines uh, actually anywhere in the Bible. Same way you won't find the term like Trinity anywhere in the Bible. But the concept of the spiritual disciplines is all throughout the scripture. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning doing is really just kind of giving you a picture of what are the spiritual disciplines? Like, why is it that I believe these are practices that are going to help us to be people that abide in Christ, that stay near to him, to give him the space to be able to produce in us the kind of life that he wants to produce? All right, so here's my own definition of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are grace-driven practices found in Scripture that Christians exercise diligently to put themselves in position for God to work in making them more like And we're just going to spend the rest of our time this morning kind of working through each part of that. So that's going to set us up well as we look at all of these different practices uh, for the rest of the summer, right? This this summer in many ways is kind of going to be like a a time of training for growth, okay? Um, I know I I played football in high school, and uh, summer was always a time to get in like a lot of practice. It was the one time of the year we were able to do two-a-days. And you would just try and get in as much practice as you could uh, to, to be able to grow in becoming a better player. And uh, the stuff we're going to be working through this summer is really this idea of we want to help give you as much as we can that you can implement to be people that really grow deep as Christians. All right? So what are these spiritual disciplines? They're grace-driven practices. I want to be clear about this off the bat. These are not things that save you. Okay? practicing spiritual disciplines is not something that's going to be able to earn you favor before the Lord. Uh, The Bible is very clear that we are saved by faith, uh, not by our works. Okay, look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no practice that I can teach you or anything like that that's going to make you holy before the Lord. There is one thing that can make you holy before the Lord, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, when, when Jesus Christ came, he, he's God, he took on flesh, he lived a perfect life that none of us have been able to live, no matter how great you get at practicing spiritual disciplines or anything else. Jesus lived perfect, and he went to the cross, and he died there. And when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. The punishment for our sin is death, and Jesus chose to take that upon himself. And he said, I will take the punishment that you deserve and I will give you the perfect life that I have. And through faith that can be transferred to us. That we can become people who have our sins paid for by Jesus and are given the perfect life of Christ. So that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as the sinner that we are, but he sees us as someone that's been made perfectly clean by the blood of his son. And we know this is true. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He showed that the debt had been paid. And those that put their faith in him will raise one day as well into eternal life. This is the gospel. And I don't want anything to ever taint that reality. I also don't want you to stop there, though, thinking that, oh, as long as I'm saved, that's all that God really wants of me. No, like God saves you into a relationship with him. And he wants you to continually grow. 
You know, just as these practices don't save us, they also don't earn God's love for us, right? He already loved you when you were a sinner. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Jesus chose to die for you before you chose to open up your Bible. Before you chose to pray. Before you chose to fast. Before you chose to do anything else that you might consider to be holy. While you were a sinner, before you were even born, like, Jesus chose to die for you. God's love is not based upon who you are. It's based upon who he is. These practices are not going to make him love you more. And so I say that these are grace-driven practices because grace always has to be at the center of why we're doing them. We're not doing them to try and earn God's favor. We know that we already have that. But rather, the grace that God has given us drives us to want to be more like him and to want to know him more. It's our awe and our thankfulness over his grace that causes us to be people that want to do everything we can to train ourselves up to be more like him. That's what I mean in saying that they're grace-driven practices. I also said that they're found in Scripture, all right? Now, the practices that we're going to be looking at this summer are ones that I would classify as spiritual disciplines, are all practices found in Scripture. And Scripture is our guide for growing in godliness. Look at 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 to 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Scripture is profitable for our training in righteousness because it comes from God, the righteous one, right? Like, there's, there's nobody that knows better how to train us in righteousness than the one that's perfectly righteous, who is the one that has breathed the Scripture. It allows us to be equipped for every good work. Scripture contains within it the practices that we need to know for how we can become the people that God wants us to be. And so that's why we'll be focusing on practices that are found in Scripture. That's not to say that there aren't other practices out there that might help you to connect with God or, or grow in holiness in somewhere they may be. But the ones that we're going to be focusing on this summer are ones that we can find being practiced in the Bible. Okay? And also remember that spiritual disciplines, as I said, you, you won't actually find that term itself in the Scripture. So there's not like an exhaustive list that you'll find anywhere. Okay? You can't go to an index in the back of your Bible and say, okay, here's all these these different things uh, that, that we can definitively say, these are all of the spiritual disciplines. Uh, people might classify some different than others. Uh, there's probably a lot of great things found in Scripture that, that you could qualify as spiritual disciplines that we're not going to be able to cover this summer. But what I can tell you is all that we're going to be examining this summer are practices that we see found in Scripture that are designed to help us grow in godliness. Okay? Now, not, these are grace-driven practices. They're found in Scripture that Christians exercise diligently, all right? Spiritual disciplines require action. They're practices that Christians do. They're activities, not attitudes. Now, these activities should change our attitudes and create better attitudes within us, but they're actual practices that we can implement. Look at what uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 8. <coughs> but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here Paul tells Timothy that he can and should discipline himself uh, for the purpose of godliness. 
Uh, that, that Greek word that's used there for discipline is actually the word from which we get gymnasium. And it gets at this idea of like training, sweating, uh, like putting in effort to be able to grow in this. There's this idea of action uh, that, that shows that we have to take some level of control in our lives to choose to implement things that are going to help us to grow in godliness. The idea of discipline and training is seen again in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. See, do you not know that those who run in a race <coughs> all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way, not as without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is using this idea, man, I discipline my body, I make it my slave. Why? I'm running for something that's imperishable. Like, I, I, I realize there are all these other kind of things that people discipline themselves for in this life, right? He, he uses this idea of an athlete. Think of how much athletes discipline themselves to excel at their sport. They, their, their sleep is centered around it. Their uh, nutrition is centered around it. They're constantly exercising and getting stronger and growing in whatever skills it is that they need to master to be excellent at their sport. And all of that is to receive, what, a perishable wreath, right? A, a, a some, a trophy, something like that, that ultimately isn't going to matter in the end. It passes away. But what we have the opportunity to do is train ourselves in godliness, to train ourselves in something that has value, not just in this life, but in the life to come. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, man, uh, bodily discipline has some benefit, but godliness has benefit both in this life and in the one to come. So may we be people that learn to actually exercise discipline and putting ourselves in position to be able to grow closer to Jesus. You know, sometimes we treat discipline like it's a dirty word. It has a connotation of sucking all the fun out of life, being stale, boring, rigid, right? We think of discipline as being the opposite of freedom. And in some ways, I get that. But I would argue that there's another way to look at discipline. And rather than discipline being the opposite of freedom, you could say that instead it's the gateway to freedom. You know, when you're disciplined in training for something, it allows you to do something that you otherwise would not be free to do. The disciplined musician, for example, that's put in hours and hours of work playing scales and, uh, you know, practicing everything they need to do to, to be excellent at their craft is able to play a piece of music that the undisciplined musician would never have the freedom to be able to do. It opens them up opportunities that they wouldn't be able to have if not for the discipline that they had practiced. The disciplined athlete is free to move in a way and, and, to, and to exercise strength and speed in a way that they would not have the freedom to do if they hadn't disciplined their body to do that. The disciplined student of Scripture is free to quote biblical passages from memory in any given situation where it's helpful that the undisciplined student of Scripture who neglects it is not going to have the freedom to be able to do it. Elizabeth Elliot said this, she said, Freedom and discipline have come to be regarded as mutually exclusive, when in fact, freedom is not at all the opposite, but the final reward of discipline. When we discipline ourselves for godliness, we are free to live the life that God has called us to, unencumbered by fear and sin that drags us down. 
These are practices that require diligence, right? Discipline carries that with it. Discipline is not something that uh, means, oh, I do this once and then overnight everything is different. There's an aspect of longevity and commitment to it. And if we want to be people that are serious about growing in godliness, we have to be people that are serious about consistently putting ourselves in position to be able to do that. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. May we be people that don't grow weary. And so we see these are practices that Christians exercise diligently to put themselves in position for God to work. You know, even though these are active steps that we take, God is still the one that has to make actual, real spiritual growth happen. Okay, look how consistently we see (coughs) that the only one who has the power to actually create growth is God. Speaking of uh, spiritual growth that took place in the Corinthian church, uh, Paul talks about this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Jesus, we already read about the vine and the branches earlier. I cut it off at verse 4. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? So, so like, we, we have the choice to say, I'm going to abide in Jesus, but he's the only one that can actually make us bear fruit. Spiritual growth is a cooperative process with God. You know, first, he has to call us to salvation, which is totally by his grace. And after this, We have to put in the effort to put ourselves in position to grow. But he's still the one that actually has to work in us to make anything happen. Look at how Paul illustrated this collaborative effort in Colossians 1.29. For this uh, purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. We put in the labor and we strive, but we know that we need God's power to actually work within us to bear any sort of real spiritual fruit. Practicing spiritual disciplines is like a farmer who goes out and he plants his seed and he plows his field and he gets all the weeds out of the field and he puts the fertilizer down and he makes sure that it's irrigated so that there's enough water uh, for the crops and the, he checks the pH soil of the uh, uh, level of the soil to make sure it's not too acidic or anything like that. He does everything he can to set the conditions right for that seed to grow. But does the farmer make the seed grow? No. At the end of the day, he's not in control of that. The only thing that he can do is set the environment to be as conducive as it possibly can be to letting that seed grow. And that's what we're doing when we practice these disciplines. You can also think about a wide receiver running a route in football, right? Like wide receivers, they're the guys in football that catch the ball, if you don't know anything about football, right? Um, The quarterback's the guy that throws it. (coughs) Uh, If you've only played backyard football, you might not know that routes are a thing. But basically, the way real football teams work is they have a plan every single time they go to the line of scrimmage. And the quarterback's not just running around trying to hope that someone gets open. Every single wide receiver has a planned route that he's supposed to run. There's an exact route. It's it's precise. The exact number of yards he's supposed to run it at. He's supposed to change direction at an exact spot. And and the quarterback knows exactly when all these things are going to happen. And if the wide receiver runs that route perfectly, he puts himself in great position to be able to catch the ball. Because he's exactly where he should be when the quarterback expects him to be there. But does that mean he's going to get the ball every time? No. The, the wide receiver running the perfect route every time doesn't guarantee he's going to catch every pass. All it does is it means that he's put himself in position to be able to have success. 
And so I'm not saying that every time you pray or every time you open up your Bible or every time you fast, you're going to have some sort of amazing experience where you have an epiphany with the Lord or something like that. But what I can tell tell you is that as you consistently put yourself in these positions, you are putting yourself in a position to be able to have significant spiritual growth over time. The last thing about our definition for spiritual disciplines we practice them diligently to put ourselves in position for God to work in making us more like Christ, right? We must remember that the purpose of the disciplines is to grow in godliness, to become more like Jesus. This is the end goal, to have real life transformation in our inner being that brings us closer to God. The spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. They are not an end in of themselves, okay? Like, simply reading your Bible doesn't inherently make you more godly, and it's not inherently honoring to Jesus, right? Like, I think a lot of people actually go through life, this is their concept of Christianity, is that God kind of wants them to just practice these certain rituals, all right? Uh, Where it's like, oh, well, God will be happy with me if I go to church every Sunday, And so I checked this box off, but the reality is, if you're not actually going with the hunger to worship the Lord and to learn and and to grow closer to Him and to grow in real fellowship with other believers, you're not doing yourself any good by doing that. And God God isn't just inherently impressed by the fact that you chose to walk into church this morning. Even here, this gathering together, this, this is one of the things we can incorporate as a discipline, but it's just a means to an end. There isn't any inherent value in and of itself for you just choosing to come here. This is valuable because you say, I'm going to worship together with other believers, I'm going to hear the word of God, and I'm going to apply it in my life. I'm going to pray with people, I'm going to be prayed for, whatever. You're putting yourself in a space for all of these kind of great things to happen. But you know, just simply going through the motions doesn't have any value in and of itself. The, 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 uh, the model of a Christian is not someone that just goes through the motions and does all of these kind of disciplines. There's a lot of people that, that might even read their Bible consistently that are not growing in godliness. There's atheists that have read the entire Bible and know it well. Simply praying selfish prayers all the time doesn't make you more godly. Right? Like there's a ton of people that, that have no desire to actually follow the Lord that are consistently praying for God to give them stuff not actually transforming you into the person that God wants you to be. You know, the Pharisees were really good at doing a lot of practices that looked godly, but didn't actually make them godly people. God is not after your rituals. He's after your heart. He wants to transform you. So the goal is not just to do these practices. The point of the practices is because if they are done with the right motivation, they can help shape us into the people that God wants us to be. They're gateways for taking hold of the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give. That's why we've decided to name this series Abundance, Disciplines of the Christian Life, because we firmly believe that God really does want to give us abundant life. And that one of the, the means through which we can take hold of that is by practicing these disciplines that give God space to work in our lives and to transform us into the people he wants us to be. So as I close here, I want to encourage you with two things. First is that God wants you to have abundant life that comes from maturity in Christ. 
that is awesome news, right? Like that the God of the universe doesn't want you to just have a boring, distant relationship with him. He doesn't want you to just kind of muddle your way through life. You don't have to be a super talented person. You just have to be someone that wants to surrender all of your life to God and trust that he knows best. And he wants to give you abundant life. He invites us to be people that come to him, that experience his way of life. Jesus told us, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, may we be people that trust that the, the offer that Jesus is making is serious. That he really does want us to come to him. That he really does want to change us. And the second thing I want to encourage you with is that God has given you practices that you can implement to help take hold of the abundant life that he wants you to have. Which means there's things that you can consciously choose to do that are going to make a major difference in the way that you experience life in your relationship with God. And this is an awesome opportunity. Right? Like, you're not just sitting there with your hands tied, just kind of hoping that something happens. God's given you the ability to, to actually take action, to try to pursue him. But if you're going to do this, it's going to require making some changes. You know, if you ever want to build something new, you first have to clear the land to be able to get it ready for the project, right? And so if you really want to experience life in a different way than you are right now, and you really want to grow deeply in your relationship with God, there's probably something or maybe multiple things in your life that need to be cleared out to make room for that. I think we often fail at implementing new habits because we don't eliminate something else in our lives to make room for them. You know, here, here's something, a, a reality. You already use all 24 hours in your day, and you do that every single day. Right? Every single one of us, all of us are perfectly efficient at using all 24 hours of our day. I don't know how you're choosing to fill it, but every single one of us uses all the time that we're given every single day in some way. And the question is, like, if you're going to be adding something else into that, you're going to try and start implementing new practices or maybe taking some practices that you already know and trying to uh, take them more seriously, that's going to require the elimination of something else in your life to make room for that because you've already got your whole 24 hours. They're already full. And so um, what I ask and what I, I kind of want to leave you with here as I, I draw to a close is like, what is it that you might need to clear in your life to be able to make room for the practices we're going to be talking about? And I know, like, I didn't get into any specific practice today. We're going to go slow through this. We're going to take it one at a time and really try to help you uh, with seeing how you can practically do this. But before we get into any of that, I want you to just be thinking about, man, where, where's the margin in my life? Like, if I'm going to be serious about implementing any of this kind of stuff, what is there room to, to be able to cut out? When Jesus told the parable uh, of the soils, he talked about these, these four different soils and uh, different levels of fruitfulness that they had, you know, it says a farmer went out, he sowed some seed, and some of it fell on the path, and the birds came and immediately snatched it up. Of course, that didn't yield anything. Uh, so, some of it fell on shallow soil, and so it sprung up immediately, but it had no roots. So when the sun came out, it scorched it, and, uh, you know, it, it didn't end up producing anything. 
And that represented people who hear the gospel, respond to it immediately with joy, but the reality is they have no root with Christ, and so as soon as persecution or trouble comes along, they fall away. Then he talked about soil number three, and I think that this is the one that's most dangerous for most of us. He said the third kind of soil is the soil, is the seed that, that fell among the thorns. And this is stuff that it, it grew, it popped up, but because there were so many thorns that were around it, it choked the plant out. And it was unfruitful. And uh, I actually want to read for you specifically what Jesus says in explaining this one. He says, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. As we are, if we let all these other kinds of things into our lives, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, all this other kind of stuff that, that we can get caught up in trying to pursue and think about in our own lives, these are the kind of things that threaten to make us people that are unfruitful. And so I think that for most, if not all of us, there's probably some kind of thorns that need to be weeded out for us to be able to be people that grow in fruit. So my challenge to you this week is to pray about what needs to be removed from your life to make room for something that God wants to do instead. Because if you believe that God wants you to continue to grow deeper with him, that he wants to prune you to always be able to bear more fruit, that there's a more abundant life than even what you're experiencing now, then something is going to have to change to be able to take hold of that. Okay? The spiritual disciplines are not magic. Not some, I'm not promising you, some, I'm not trying to sell you something. All I'm trying to do is lay before you a pathway to be able to put yourself in position to let the God of the universe really get into your heart and get into your mind and take hold of you and transform you from the inside out. And he's the only one that can do that. No practice is going to be able to do that. The practices are just helping us get in the spot to really yield ourselves to God, give him control of our lives, and let him do what he wants to do. And if we do that, guys, I think there's going to be awesome fruit that comes from that. I really do. I really do believe that. Like, I think we're going to be people that grow deeply in our relationship with Christ. We're going to be people that grow in the fruit of the Spirit that he's talking about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We're going to be people that start to see greater fruitfulness and effectiveness in our ministry. And I'm speaking to myself, too. You know, I'm not at the, I'm not at the zenith of, of Christian maturity. I still have a lot of growing to do myself. And I'm excited about that, though. That's okay. Like, I know that, that God's going to keep continuing to prune me. That's good. I, I, I'm looking forward to whatever it is that he has to do in my life as he wants to call me deeper and deeper with him. And guys, we're on that journey together. So that, that's just what we are as a church. People are saying we consistently want to be making room for God to do whatever he wants to do in our lives closer to him and deeper with him. So uh, let's pray and then the band can come back up. <clears throat> God, we love you and I just uh, thank you that you care about us the way you do. Um, I think of what a gift it is, Lord, that you really like want to give us abundant life. God, we, we actually just don't know how to pursue what's best for us. Like I, I think we're all intention. We want to have joy in life. We want to have full lives, God, but um, often we just, apart from you, Lord, we don't know how to do it. Um, 
God, I trust your word. Like, I, I trust your promises. I trust that <coughs> you come to give <laughs> abundant life. <coughs> I trust that there's fullness of joy in your presence. And so, Lord, uh, man, I just pray for us as a church, God, that, that we would be people that really yield ourselves to you. Um, God, that just are consistently and, and diligently disciplining ourselves and putting ourselves in position to, to let you work, that are, that are clearing ground for what you want to do and uh, that, that are choosing to, to just come before you in every way we can to let you transform us. And so, God, I know that one of the ways you even do that is is through, like, corporate worship. And we're going to talk about that some this summer. And I pray, Lord, as we uh, sing these songs together, that you'd move even in this space. Um, Lord, that, that yeah, you, you would just even do something in our hearts as we uh, express our thanks to you, as we express the glory that, that you deserve, that, that you have. God, that, that you would do something in our hearts that pulls us closer to you and makes us more like you. We love you a lot, Lord. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.